If you take your Bibles and turn with me to Colossians uh, chapter 1, Colossians chapter 1, I'll read verses 13 through 20, Colossians chapter 1. For he rescued us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross, through whom I say whether things on earth or things in heaven. Let's ask the Lord's blessing on his word. Father, we thank you for such an exalted statement of your son. Lord, please give us insight and illumination through the ministry of God, the Holy Spirit. As we approach this text, grant us a due reverence for the Lord Jesus Christ, an ability to more and more see how he is displayed for us. We ask this through him. Amen. When I was uh, growing up in suburban Birmingham, Alabama, I was part of a fairly large youth group, and so it had people from a lot of different school districts, and uh, one of my friends in the middle school in the youth group was from, we might say, a more resourced school system, which meant that uh, they had foreign languages offered in middle school, and uh, he took French, and I thought, wow, that is so exotic. You know, I wish we had French at River Chase Middle School, but of course we didn't. But uh, he, would, he had a pen pal in France, and he would bring me pictures of his pen pal, and I think he would try to write broken letters in French to his pen pal, and the pen pal would write him broken letters in English, and they went back and forth. And so he had a real relationship with the person. I don't know to this day whether he met them or not, but he never physically been in their presence. And perhaps that's the best way to approach Colossians. The Apostle Paul never physically, at least at this time in his ministry, ever went uh, to Colossae, which is located about uh, 100 miles inland from, uh, from the Mediterranean or the Aegean on the, of the coast of Turkey. In other words, it's a part of western, modern western Turkey, and it was very close to Laodicea, and it was a, obviously a church plant. The Apostle Paul would stay an inordinate amount of time, as far as his ministry was concerned. He sort of had ants in his pants, if you read Acts, and was always going around planting churches. But he spent three whole years in Ephesus, till in Acts 19, it said that the, the, the whole region of Asia, which isn't China or Japan or India, but western Turkey, had received the gospel. And, and in that time, obviously, there had been a church plan in this prosperous city of Colossae. And so the pastor of the church is this fellow named Epaphras. And apparently in around 62 AD, 
He traveled to Rome to tell the Apostle Paul what was going on in the church. And as real churches have real members, they have real problems. And there's a significant problem in the church in Colossae. If you read the first chapter, you find that the Apostle Paul offers up uh, moving prayers on behalf of the Colossians. So he's aware that these are earnest and sincere believers, but they're immature. They're vulnerable. Uh, they need discernment. And the issue appears to be that there was a, a subtle theological shift going on, as is so often the case. And it's, it's one of uh, a great moment. And that shift is confidence in the adequacy or sufficiency of Jesus Christ. And that might sound like sort of ethereal. What does that mean? Well, there are these false teachers, wolves that came into the church that probably had some sort of pedigree. The commentators debate whether it was like Jewish mystical type people, but they were saying uh, Jesus is sort of the entree to salvation, it would appear. But, and that's a big B-U-T, uh, when it comes to your growth, when it comes to the stability of the church, the church needs to excel in some of these other areas, like knowledge of the unseen world, the angelic and the de demonic world, or perhaps practice asceticism, which is harsh treatment of the body. It's the typical view that follows Christianity around like a bad odor, that believes that the body is uh, the, the biggest impediment to sanctification, the body and its desires. And so you treat it harshly, and uh, that, that's the key to growth. And perhaps an emphasis on circumcision. And, it, and if you know the language of the New Testament, it's a sort of Gnostic heresy, which is an emphasis on the ethereal and becoming an expert in these, these unseen things. And by doing so, you could achieve a higher level of sanctification, a higher level of knowledge of God. And so subtly, and this is a play like Satan uses from time eternal, still uses it in the church today where he's determined and his main goal is not a problem so much with churches, but problem with the churches being built uh, resolutely on the foundation of Jesus Christ. He's always trying to shift the church away from a, a living relationship with him. And so that's what's going on here. It's a tireless sort of play that always works for them. And so it gives a very bold clear, exalted statement on who Jesus is. So Paul's in prison. He's gotten this report from Epaphras, and he's telling you who Jesus is, and by implication, what does that mean? Now, the astounding thing, if you look at this text, is this apparently was the working man's knowledge of the person of Christ in the first century. I'd like to suspect if I went away to around to a lot of PCA churches, perhaps even my own, and would ask folks, you know, who is Jesus Christ? Would you get this description? But apparently, this was the standard understanding of who he is in terms of his, uh, his, his, his person. So three decades after the ascension of Jesus Christ, this is the working explanation of Jesus. And, and I would say that this play by Satan to shift the church here or there 
from the headship of Christ, the foundational being built on him, and absolute confidence in the pew, in your mind, in terms of certainty that, that Jesus is adequate to sanctify you, to keep his commitments, to keep his promises, and to build his church. Uh, Satan will do everything he can to undermine it. And so what Paul just right out of the chute in this letter is going to do is hold up the glory of Christ and to reassure them that any attack, any attack on the adequacy or sufficiency of Jesus is indirectly an attack upon the authority and the supremacy and the preeminence of who Jesus is. And so, Paul gets to this point in his letter, he's explaining, uh, reminding them of the, the glory of their salvation, which he poses as a, a really a one-sided rescue. Uh, it's, it's like a, for the sinner, they're in a hopeless situation, and it's like uh, SEAL Team 6 being put into a, a hostage situation, that it's, it's that hopeless, but in Christ they've been rescued. And he, he goes on to explain that rescue. It's one of transformation, but of redemption. Now, uh, the, the New Testament was written in Koine Greek, which was not high classical Greek, uh, and, it, and there's some gutter expressions. Redemption is one of those gutter expressions, and it refers to the slave market, which was in every town of substance in the first century, there was a slave market operating 365 days a year, buying and selling people. And Paul takes that, Im that ugly image and he transfers it to sinners and, say, and says that through the high price of his blood, he has paid the ransom, he has rescued them and liberated them from the, the bondage and the penalty of sin. And so the, the believer now is a slave, not of sin and Satan and death, but of Jesus Christ, whose yoke is easy and whose burden is light. And so, in doing so, having paid that high price, of course, the penalty of sins, the forgiveness of sins is dealt with. So he's explaining, who is this beloved Son who is so befitted with sovereignty and glory, who's regal in his splendor? And so, how can you be certain that he can redeem and forgive? Apparently, that's being undermined by these people who are pushing these other methods. So who is the glorious beloved Son? Well, first off, you need to understand that he's the image of the invisible God. He's divine. In the Godhead, the Father, the Son, the Spirit, one God in three persons, you just confessed this morning in your, uh, your larger catechism recitation, you find that there's only one God, same in essence, but there are three distinct persons. And the second person of the Godhead, who's fully divine as the Word made flesh, God the Son, and he's posed as the image of the invisible and so, when you think of image, you know, you probably think of your Samsung Galaxy or your iPhone or your iPad where you take, you know, a, a thousands and thousands of pictures. And so, it, it corresponds to the reality, but it's not really the reality. It resembles the reality, it sort of captures the reality of what the picture is, but it's, it's not the reality. That's not what this means. 
Jesus being the icon of the invisible God, everything that makes the Father God, the Spirit God, is true of Jesus Christ. He's simply the, the contrast is not between a, a, pitch, a, a phony picture of reality and the reality itself. The contrast is between visible and invisible. Christ is the visible member of the Godhead. All right, the Spirit's invisible. The, the Father is invisible. No man has seen the Father. This explains Jesus' words to Philip in John chapter 14, verse 9, where he says, Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. So he's not here uh, saying he is the Father, but he's, he's saying there's uh, the, the sharing of the essence between the Father, or substance between the Father and the Son. So Jesus reveals clearly the nature and character of God. And so the divine can only be revealed by the divine. Uh, Jesus' deity is emphasized in verse 19, for it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. Apparently this word fullness was something used by the false teachers to uh, grant, to, to say if you come into understanding fullness, you can reach this higher level. He's saying all the fullness dwells in Christ. I, New American Standard, the ESV says, I think many other translations, perhaps yours, for in him all the fullness of God, they have the preposition of God, it's not in the original Greek, but it's certainly implied that, that, he is, that, that he's pleased to dwell. So Jesus is divine, we certainly know that. In chapter 2, verse 9, it says, for in him all the fullness of deity dwells bodily. So you have this very high view of who the person of Christ is. He's the second person of the Godhead who's been incarnate and therefore visible. And so there's this unity between the Father and the Son and the Spirit. And there's, so there's no chasm. There's no uh, Grand Canyon, as it were, between the Father and the Son and the Spirit. There's unity. But they're distinct persons. They share a similar essence. And as divine... Interestingly, he says he is the agent of creation. He is the heir of creation. So you see this in verse 15, the firstborn of all creation. Now, if you know anything about church history, you, you perhaps have run into this, this very ugly person, uh, Arius. It was an early church heretic that argued that Jesus is really impressive and he's uh, got supernatural powers and divine like, but he had a beginning. Apparently, it was like sort of like a, a worship leader, you know, that new category of uh, church staff people. And he went around teaching everybody a little song. It went something like this: that there was a time when he was not. Let's all sing together. There was a time when he was not. And so there, he was attacking subtly Jesus's eternity. And so Jesus was the highest being, he was, but he was still a created being. He had a beginning, and apparently one of the proof texts he would hammer is this one, that Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. Now what he's talking about there is not sequence of time, but rank. If you've ever heard of the issue of uh, progenitor, the office of progenitor, uh, what am I talking about? So uh, I'm sure in the crowd like this you have some Jane Austen fans that have read Sense and Sensibility. It was her first novel, and uh, I think it's the, it's been a while, Dashwoods. It's the, the, the great 
struggle at the beginning of the novel is there's been this British aristocrat and lower nobility, and he's he's died, and he's uh, left you know the British common law, all the sort of like the law of the Medes and the Persians. Everything goes to the the firstborn, and from his first marriage, his first wife had died in remarriage, and you know Miss Dashwood and all the daughters can't remember how many there were, but that's the crisis. Everything the father had goes to the son because of his rank. And this was in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 21, 15 through 17. Israel had the priority of the firstborn son over all else, over the mother, over the siblings. And so Jesus, as the creator, is first in rank over creation to such an extent, he goes on to explain that all things were created uh, by him and for him. Okay, things in the heavens and earth, visible and invisible. That's really comprehensive language. So things you can see. You know, we live in a materialistic age. Things you can see, touch, taste, smell, those things. But wow, even the things that in the first century, that audience was petrified of. They were terrified of, which is the unseen world. And how do you control it? And they thought the world was divided into all these deities and semi-deities and how do you appease them and propitiate them? And life was just totally filled with superstition and paranoia defending them. But you see that Jesus created even the unseen world, not, even, not only the seen world, so it's comprehensive. The verse 16, all things, he says it multiple times here, I think four times, uh, that the prepositions there, notice it, by him, through him, for him. And not only that, He's before all things. And in him all things hold together. So that was a problem of the familiar with the downfall of American Puritanism. And the Ivy League, as it was originally constituted to train young ministers, was this uh, awful heresy of deism. And the idea is that, well, yeah, there is a supreme being. We honor him. He created the world. He set it spinning. And then he went, threw himself down on the couch, and was watching Sports Center. He's not involved in his creation. And they have all these laws in nature that control it. But contrary to that, not only is Jesus creator, but he's Lord of providence. He's controlling and sustaining. And so you have this very high Christology about Jesus as Lord over creation. All the resources of the created order have been put at his disposal for the church. Now, as I mentioned, uh, I'm a big fan and sort of student of the professor I think you're familiar with, Douglas Kelly. In the early 90s, uh, mid-90s, I was in seminary with him. And uh, that was, of course, time in the world history where the, uh, the Berlin Wall fell, then the Soviet Union fell, and he was ecstatic. He was thrilled. And uh, the point he kept making was to us was, you know, all these intelligence agencies, I don't know how many there are, they seem to grow every day. Uh, they didn't anticipate this. Why? They, it would call them by surprise. Why? Because he said, the Western secular elites, Phil Whitehall in London or the Pentagon, or Langley and Virginia, these great ones, these people, 
They believe that the Kremlin is at the center of history. Uh, they believe that the New York Stock Exchange is at the center of history. They believe that Manhattan is at the center of history, or the White House, or the Capitol Building, or Beijing. That's what rules history. And he made the point, they never, they never thought about the church. The church, which apparently the, the movement that began in Eastern Europe by uh, devout evangelicals was the tipping point in Romania and all these other countries that fell simultaneously without being anticipated by the great ones because Jesus is over creation for his church, his beloved bride. So Robert Guff, uh, Donald Guffrey, the uh, late New Testament commentator says, from start to finish, the created order is bound up with the person of Christ. So that's good news. It's good news for you and your growth as a believer. That's good news for uh, Woodruff Road, Presbyterian Church. Why? Because Jesus is over creation. He's independent of it. He's a saity. He's not uh, dependent on the material world. He's not dependent on angelic powers. He has no need of help from the unseen world. And so he's absolutely, totally free. And so this absolutely helps, protects the church. And you're called to have this exalted view because Jesus is not only head of the old creation, but he's head of the, the new creation. And so you, you see this. Who is the beloved son and why is he glorious? Verse 18, he is the head of the body, the church. Uh, and so, again, the body, you know, Paul uses it a lot in 1 Corinthians, and he's emphasizing the interdependence of the body, and so the hand needs the mouth, the mouth needs the, the leg and the foot. But this is emphasizing the importance of the head as supreme, as absolute monarch. And so we, we know this in the business world. You know, Jeff Bezos, you know, he runs Amazon and you know, just makes all these important decisions. And what he says gets executed. We know that with Vladimir Putin, head of Russia. He makes decisions. They get implemented. Well, in a gracious way, in a supreme way, the head of the church is not the Bishop of Rome. The head of the church is not Karl Robbins. The head of the church is not Bart Lester. The head of the church is Jesus Christ. That's something the church needs to know. And as the head, he guides it. And so the point is, is that he transcends everything. In all things, he might be preeminent. In the uh, new creation of the church and the old creation of uh, the world. And so he says he is the beginning there in uh, verse 18. And apparently, it's supposed to take the, the, old t the, the audience, the original audience, the Colossians, who were very familiar with the, the uh, Septuagint, back to Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There were perhaps even John's gospel uh, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. Jesus is Lord over the new creation of the church because He is the beginning. How is He the beginning? Well, He's defeated the great enemy of God's people, which is death. 
And so he's the first born of the same title, first in rank over the great enemy of death. He's defeated death. And that's how he is the head of the church. And he's, in doing so, by his death and resurrection, he's come to have preeminence, as I've mentioned there, first place in everything. Uh, in verse 20, that through him to reconcile all things to himself and made peace by the blood of the cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. And so Jesus has fulfilled a comprehensive, total, complete salvation for the people of God. Reconcili- two parts of it. Reconciliation, making peace. All things. It's even cosmic. We have a hard time grasping that. End up in the new heavens in the new earth when he makes all things new. Not now, but then. And he's made peace. He ends the futility. There is certain futility to life. It was inherited from the fall in the garden. And so, you, you know, why does everything always break all the time? Why does my wife always get flat nails in her tires? You know, why, why does the uh, air conditioner break when it's 104 degrees in Montgomery, Alabama? You know, why does that happen frequently? Why, does I, why do I get holes in my roof? Why, why does there, you know, you, you work with people and it just is a disaster. Why? There's a certain futility to existence that ends. And what you get in place is the shalom of God, the peace of God. All through the work of Christ. And again, it's the, 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 the blood of the cross. So, it's very important that you understand that when Paul looks at the cross, he doesn't just see, you know, a martyr to free thought. He doesn't just see someone publicly executed. What he sees is an enormous transaction, a violent death. But that violent death, he defines in Romans 3 as propitiation, a wrath-bearing sacrifice, just like John does in 1 John 4 and 1 John to Jesus, at the high cost of his blood, wrath has been satisfied in the cross, and the consequences are reconciliation and peace. And so if you're following along, if you're listening, you get two big things here. You ought to have a very exalted view of who Jesus is. You know, when I was a child, I spent a lot of time in Sunday school. My parents were very devout, took me to church all the time, and somehow I walked away thinking, you know, Jesus is sort of like a hippie. He's, he's um, you know, he's, he's running around in fields with, you know, children and playing with flowers and all this kind of stuff. And it's just, I know that's absurd, but it, it, it really is a lot of people's opinion of who Jesus is. And they're stuck in the, Jesus in his humiliation. But now he's prophet, priest, and king. He's the reigning Lord. He's truly been revealed to be who he is, the king of creation. And as such, he is preeminent. He is supreme. And so here's the point. Here's the point of application. Inevitably, in Christianity, in the 20th century, in the 21st century, there are subtle attacks on the supremacy of Christ. If you're a church like yourself, a church that has a high view of the word of God, a church that meets twice on Sunday, a church that sings from a hymnal, a church that has a prayer meeting, you're absolutely irrelevant. 
You're not making any progress to be a, to be a, you know, a church on the cutting edge. We have got to go, you know, to, to Hollywood. And, and there we can look and we can find and see, you know, how to entertain people. We, you've got to get a, these guys have got to lighten up, lose the robes, lose the tie. People are going to get offended. This makes people uncomfortable. It's too serious. It's too rigid. You've, you've got to get some new methods. You know, you need to really learn from Starbucks. Man, they're everywhere. These people know marketing. They know franchising. You've got to get a brand. You've got to promote it. If you're just sitting here listening to the Bible read and preached twice a week, 52 weeks a year, you're not going to make a difference anywhere. And so that subtle unbelief, it comes at pastors, it comes at leaders in the church, and they begin to think, wow, you know, really, have we grown that much? Wow, I guess we do need to, to go to this conference or, you know, back in the day, Robert Schuller and the Crystal Cathedral or Bill Hybels or the Purpose Driven Life. These guys, they really got it going in Orange County, man. And you go to the conference and there you learn that everything you've been doing is, forgive the expression, retarded. And you got to have confidence in the method, in the technique, in your personality. And so, that's in a subtle sense what they're dealing with in Colossae. Jesus isn't sufficient to grow the church. If you just believe in the ordinary means of grace, God's word being preached, him opening doors out in Greenville, the gospel being proclaimed out there, him gathering his church with the word of God and reverent worship service, that in his way, he's going to add to its number. It's going to be solid growth and real growth, not cancerous growth. And so Jesus is sufficient. He's over creation for the sake of his church. And he has all the resources at his disposal. You don't have confidence in that. Because if you don't, in the very pragmatic society, I love being American. You know, I, I, I'm, I'm so glad I live here. I've traveled a bit and just enough to know, you know, 30 seconds outside of America, I wish I was back home in Montgomery, in my house. I like it. But there's some subtle ideas, you know, in America that just have affected the church. And one of them is, you know, who are the people that, that built America? It wasn't the philosophers. It wasn't the people that came over and looked at their navel. It was the doers. It was the pragmatic people. It was the problem solvers. And they come and they carve this great civilization out of a wilderness. And so that same spirit of pragmatism gets in the life of the church and it attacks the methods that Jesus lays down authoritatively as the head of the church, particularly in the pastoral epistles or places like Acts chapter 20 where Paul's speaking to the Ephesian elders and he says, hey, here's my method. I went house to house and I preached the whole counsel of God and I didn't shrink back from declaring it to anybody, anytime, anywhere. I made the statements of truth and hey, I took the consequences. And guess what? A place like Ephesus was turned upside down. Jesus is sufficient. And any doubt about that for him to grow the church is an enormous mistake. What about your own growth and sanctification? you got those same sort of besetting sins that are just are nagging. You can never get on top of them. Well, guess what? Go to your local Christian bookstore, and you can get a thousand different books offering you a thousand different techniques and remedies to 
to make progress. When I was a college student, it was the, you know, the spiritual warfare. Hey, I believe in the angelic world. I believe in the demonic. You run, you, you, I was just talking to Carl. You run into some really weird things in ministry. Ministry is never boring. You, you run into some really strange conflicts and people tied up in sin. And so I do, yes, I do believe in the demonic. But there was this, you know, Frank Peretti book. The, you know, you might, not, might be dating myself. Most people don't know what I'm talking about. But you've got to learn which angelic powers over which area. You know, you, you pray to bind Satan here and there and all that. That's how you grow. That's how you get power to deal with the problem of the remnants and vestiges of sin in my own life. Sort of a mystical approach. You know, Watchman Nee, that was handed to me as an early Christian, as Chinese Christian, sit, walk, stand, and the spiritual man, and all of this. You just go way down these, these paths, and you end up in utter despair because your confidence has been undermined that Jesus in the ministry of the Holy Spirit, where I've plugged in deep into the life of the church, is the place where real change happens, where God really begins to, to, to make me a new creature and daily transform me. And so, the attack on the sufficiency of Christ is something you need to be aware of. You need to get some discernment. And, and when people make these subtle shifts about the new and greatest version of Christianity in American evangelicalism, or the newest and greatest technique in the life of the growth of the church, you need to go back to a passage like Colossians chapter 1. And there reflect on the grandeur, the regal, pristine, utter power of the Son of God to grow His church, to protect His church, to sustain His church, and to keep His commitments to you, the average believer in the pew. The glory of Christ is preeminent in the life of the church. To keep this out in front is the most important thing, or you will be sucked in like the Colossians, well-meaning people, devout people, into that subtle, subtle trap of doubting unbelief of the sufficiency of Christ to grow you to grow the church. So let's pray together. Father in heaven, uh, thank you so much for, wow, what an exalted statement about your son. Please give us a greater reverence and confidence that he is able to build and grow the church. We ask this in Jesus' name.